All right, I'm back in plenary session. Real virtual edition, not real life edition, I wish it were. I'm back with my friend and colleague, Dr. Zeb Yamrozik. Dr. Yamrozik is a practicing doctor in Australia. He is an infectious disease epidemiologist, historian, ethicist, all of the above, really. Zeb, it's a pleasure to have you back here, I think for the fourth time, is it? Yeah, it's great to be back, Vinay. I'm sorry that we keep having to do this. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm kind of hoping that one day we'll run out of COVID-related things to talk about, but for now, um, then there's a lot of things going wrong. There's a lot of things going wrong. And um, and so I really enjoy these conversations. We've done three of them. They have a dramatic response on, on YouTube and uh, on, on the podcast. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have listened at this point. Um, and I think that reflects the fact that, you know, you're somebody who's a very thoughtful person and you're bringing a sort of long, thoughtful tradition to these issues. Let's talk by. Let's start by talking about what we were just chatting about a second ago. Uh, you know, I, uh, I I warned you that I might not be at my best because I've been forced to have a booster. I had a booster today. I think it might be one of the first times I've been vaccinated for something that I truly didn't think was in my own best interest. Um, and I actually, and I'm doing it because I don't want to be fired. Of course, I'll do anything not to be fired. If they want to punch me in the face, I'll take 25 punches. You know, I, I'm 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 a cockroach. You can't you can't stop me from coming to work um, because I love work and I will. I, and that's who I am. And um, but that doesn't make me feel good. You know, as somebody who's done all this work in science and evidence and policy, it doesn't make me feel good to feel coerced. I wonder your thoughts on this workplace mandates for boosters and young people who think they're healthy like myself. Yeah, I think um, that's part of a, a bigger set of questions about uh, are mandates justified at all? Were they, you know, were they ever justified and are they justified now? Um, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, when they hear about healthcare, they say, yeah, of course it makes sense to mandate booster, you mandate vaccines, the more the better, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and there's lots of healthcare workers who've been clamoring for boosters, you know, give me those boosters, I need, I need protection and so on. Um, and that's fine mm -hmm. if people want to have them. But it's hard for me to see how a, a mandate could be justified, especially a mandate for boosters, um, and especially for young, healthy males, you know, in whom the risks of that booster, of having an mRNA booster, might actually outweigh the benefits. Um, the only thing I have so, going for me is I'm I'm nearing 40, so I'm 30 now. So <laughs> I guess I'm out of the worst window of risk. That's what I have in my favor. But, but I agree with you. And maybe let's talk a little bit, and you probably were going to go there, Omicron. Omicron changes a lot of the ethics around mandates because vaccine effectiveness for symptomatic infections has, has plummeted. Can we talk about that? Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, a lot of people talk about Omicron being a game changer in multiple ways. In some ways, I'm often a bit skeptical about that. You know, for example, they claim that it's a lot more, a lot less severe on average. And it's like, sure, but imagine you had to choose being, if you're an 80-year-old and get Omicron, even a vaccinated 80-year-old, or you could choose to be an 18-year-old and get Delta or whatever you think is the most dangerous variant. Um, of course, you would choose to be the 18-year-old. So you know, with it's the quite Delta, clear. with the Delta, yeah, yeah right, yeah, exactly, right. And so it's quite clear that you know, in terms of individual severity, whatever the difference Omicron makes, it can't be that huge. You know, it's nothing like the difference in age, for example. Um, but where That's it does make means. a big, uh, where it does make a big difference is vaccine efficacy against mild infection, not against severe disease, as far as we can tell for now. But yeah, I mean, you've seen these data, the UK data show, if you've had two doses of doesn't matter what vaccine, uh, six months after your second dose, your efficacy against mild disease is 0%, 0%, you're getting no protection. And I guess the, um, against mild disease. And I guess, I guess the important thing here is that, um, well, first of all, how can vaccines prevent transmission? Well, they can prevent transmission in two ways. 
One, they can stop you from getting infected or getting mild disease. Um, and so when it comes to Omicron, they're failing to do that after only a few months. And boosters aren't any better. You know, after three months after your booster, efficacy is already less than 50%. Um, and it's going to go down to zero real fast. Um, so vaccines can prevent transmission by one, stopping you from getting infected. And two, by changing the trajectory of your infection so that you're less infectious to others if you are infected. And look, there's been all kinds of papers. Um, and initially, I was a bit convinced about this too. You know, I, there, there are all kinds of papers showing that maybe vaccines, once you got infected, you know, might reduce certain kinds of factors. But if you actually look at the outcomes, the hard outcomes, like who gets infected within households, there's no difference. So if you live with a person who's vaccinated or unvaccinated and that person gets infected, once they're infected, your chance of getting infected isn't any different. And that suggests that the vaccines don't have any effect on the second type of transmission blockade. And if in addition, they no longer prevent people from getting infected, well, then they don't block transmission. Um, or, you know, if you want to be as optimistic as possible, maybe they reduce transmission for a few months by reducing your mild infection rate for a few months. But gosh, that's a very small effect. And that's not the kind of effect that would justify a mandate. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's that's really important. And, um, you know, all the points you're making are excellent. And I think that household study that the one I read that says exactly what you're saying is the Denmark one, um, which is really a well done study. Um, but I think what this I mean, the additional point I want to add on is that when we first pursued the original EUA for vaccine, the FDA said something like, we need a point estimate of vaccine efficacy in a randomized study over 50%, and the lower bound of the confidence interval has to be above 30%. And people wondered, like, well, this is a pandemic. Why are we setting 50% is a lot? Maybe we'll take 20%. But what that means is, you know, if you had a 20%, that might not do much to bend the pandemic trajectory. And we also forget that you're not just rolling the dice once, you're rolling the dice every single day. And if you have a 50% chance of losing, you're, it's eventually going to happen. Breakthrough is guaranteed. And so, I mean, I think your points are astute. I mean, I totally agree. I just don't do not see primary vaccination nor the booster. It's not enough to extinguish the pandemic. It's not enough to blunt transmission at a population level to have a very modest effect. The effect will wane with time unless we get a, a an IV drip of vaccine. I mean, I don't know how you're going to sustain it because you <laughs> boost and boost. But I think maybe they're working on a depot, depot vaccine, IV drip vaccine. Um, so, but that, but I wonder if you'll probe a little bit. Some people say it is not a moral prerequisite to halt transmission to mandate. They say, you know, just like you have to wear seatbelts in your car, um, you know, and okay. So here are my thoughts and I'm curious how you will frame it. The thing I think are different about the seatbelt mandates, which I do believe is an individual health benefit is one, no one's actually injecting a substance into your body. It's a seatbelt Two, um, no one's actually enforcing that you do it. I mean, to be honest, if you went in your car right now, you'd probably drive a lot of miles before you ever got caught. Three, you don't lose your job if you get caught. You get a $20 ticket or a $100 ticket. You don't lose your job and banned from working in the sector for which you trained. As a, as a doctor, if I didn't do it, I would be banned from healthcare in every place. Um, you, you, you also didn't make people do it in three months. We actually took a decade, two decades to do it. I remember in the 80s when I was a kid, my parents used to tell us, don't get them in trouble. You get lucky you won't be able to find them. Um, you know, they used to tell us the, the seatbelts are only for the front seat of the car, not the back seat. That's a not, you don't need the seatbelt. And, and they truly believe that, they, you know, they love their kids. And that was the culture. I never went in anyone's car, you know. And so I think, uh, 
you know, all, all these things, the burden, the duration, the punishment, they're all so different. Um, and the uncertainty was different. Like the seatbelt you knew was a mechanical intervention. You know, whether we like it or not, we don't know everything about mRNA vaccines. Um, and these are fundamental differences. I wonder, okay, how do you think about that um, question? Yeah, well, just on the seatbelt analogy yeah. first, I mean, one thing I've learned in this pandemic is that epidemiologists don't really understand analogy on average, you know, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, argument by analogy, that's something you study in a philosophy degree, you can learn a lot about when analogies work and when they don't. Epidemiologists, they don't study that. And and some of them are good at it, but most of them aren't. And yeah, I think this seatbelt analogy is, is not not very apt at all. And I think one of the one of the key things is the thing you said about the degree of punishment. So yeah, Lots of things are mandated or required by law or required by social norms, but there's not a big punishment for you if you don't do it. Uh, you know, I don't know what a seatbelt fine is, $50 or something, you know? Yeah. Um, so people can ch choose not to do it. Plus, as you said, you plug in the seatbelt yourself. You decide whether you want to wear it or not. You know, it's not like, it's not like you're, having, you're being forced to have uh, something. Yeah, and, and the biggest thing is, yeah, we don't exile you from society, you know, parade you in front of people and say, this man did not yeah. wear his seatbelt, yeah. you, you can't have a job and so on. And so that reveals that the word mandate um, just identifies something that involves some coercion. You know, there can be a small amount of coercion where we fine you $50 or we say, oh, would be, you know, we, we maybe um, reprimand you in some small way. And you can go through medium levels of coercion to very severe coercion, like when we take away your access to employment and education. And, and in, you know, in the case of, uh, you know, the, the current narratives in places like France and Canada, and I think the US to really try and exile you, ostracize you from society. That's a huge amount of coercion. And some people say, oh, well, no one's forcing you. They're not holding you down and like injecting the vaccine into you. It's like, well, let me tell you, um, if, if, if that's a huge degree of coercion and it, and it only falls short of physical force by a very small degree. Um, and just to go back, uh, so yeah, I think the seatbelt analogy totally doesn't work. Um, and then just as do, you know, a lot of other analogies fail in this context. And then just to go back uh, to talk about what the FDA expected before talking about the kind yes. of ethics of mandates. Yeah, those FDA requirements came from World Health Organization criteria because they said, yeah, even they said, well, most people expected that a coronavirus vaccine would be pretty hard to make, actually, um, mm -hmm. and that we would accept 50% efficacy uh, or effectiveness. Um, and I think it's fair to say that the initial trial results, uh, say from Pfizer, AstraZeneca or whatever, were way better than most informed people expected, and also that they were too good to be true. Mm. Uh, and why were they too good to be true? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, you know, the first dossier that they sent to the FDA was 46 days of data or something, you know, once those Kaplan-Meier curves diverged, uh, they were like, great, 95% protection and so on. Um, and it looked amazing. And I have to say that at that time, I thought, gosh, I was wrong. You know, vaccines, vaccines were easier to develop than I thought. And if it's 95% protection against mild disease, then they probably will have a big effect on transmission. Um, but you know, over time, <laughs> things have changed. The yeah. immunity wanes, the yeah. variants change and yeah. so on. Um, but another problem with those trials is that is that they basically canceled the placebo arm, right? Yeah. So at about three months, they crossed um, uh, everyone, everyone in the placebo arm got the active vaccine. And then so we never really we never really got to some good data on waning for a long time. Um, and so that leaves us uh, now uh, with vaccines that provide very good individual benefits still, but have minimal to zero effect on transmission, especially in the medium to long term. Um, and 
you know, initially, initially when the vaccines came out and then people said, you still need to wear a mask, I was really angry. And the reason I was angry, I was like, if the vaccines really work, why, why do vaccinated people still need to wear masks for COVID? Maybe right. for other viruses, I don't know, but definitely not for COVID. Um, so I was, I was upset about that. And, and then over time, I've become angry for different reasons, because, yeah. as you say, uh, it's kind of a situation where if the vaccine works, then there's no reason for vaccinated people to wear a mask. Correct. If it doesn't work, well, then it's inevitable that you're going to get infected. Correct. And so there's no there's no, you know, benefit of wearing a mask, really, um, you know, right. except in settings where you're going to transmit to extremely vulnerable people or, you know, in hospital settings, maybe and so on. Um, so. So either way, we should we should have stepped down non-pharmaceutical interventions basically as soon as high-risk individuals had had access to vaccines. But but my thinking about it has changed over time. Yeah, I have uh, two more thoughts about the seatbelt analogy that I think you'll like. One is that it, the analogy to make it more perfect is well, first we mandated you wear the seatbelt, and then uh, six months later you had to get two seatbelts across your lap uh, because uh, booster. And every four months you add a seatbelt, and the endpoint isn't a reduction in injury in the collision. The endpoint is a uh, uh, a non inferior coverage of the torso with the belt. <laughs> <laughs> we we prove that it's non inferior torso coverage, and then we prove that it like a, an eighty year old definitely needs three seat belts. But we're just gonna make a twelve year old do it just to keep it simple. And then the other seat belt analogy to make it right would be, you know, if you wear a seat belt and you actually advise people to wear a seat belt, but you just don't think we should mandate seat belts, well then you're an anti seat belter. <laughs> yeah, then you're anti seat belt. Or, you're an you know, or if you say, yeah. or if you say, for example, that. Uh, People, um, if you point out that, say, airbags occasionally kill children, wow. you know, uh, or, you know, and so that car safety might not necessarily be in everyone's interest all the time. Well, then you're anti-safety and, you know, yeah. you should be cancelled and lose your academic position and so on. Um, so, yeah, I think. And I think some cars actually, if they turn off the airbag, depending on the weight in the seat, because that's an issue for small. I, I actually don't know all that stuff. Um, I also think it's an analogy is not apt in another way, which is like. A mechanical intervention to minimize the harm of the device is different than an exogenous vaccine to minimize the harm of Mother Nature. Like we made the car, and you know, just like if you if you make a cocktail table and you sand down the edges, you know, the evidence for sanding down the edges to keep you from gashing yourself when you bump into it, that's not going to be as stringent as the evidence for. I don't know, swallowing tablets and injecting yourself with immunogenic substances. I mean, I think there's some difference there between blunting the harms of something you have created that is harmful. Otherwise, you just have barbed wire everywhere. You know, you know, I don't know. Yeah, I think I think that's right. And but I, but I also think we need to know we still need to know that, that they work, you know, because there's all kinds of people who say, oh, mechanistically masks make sense, so they must work. And it's like, no, I want to see the study that's well designed and well controlled yeah. and shows me the effect size. Um, and same goes for seatbelts, you know. I mean, it doesn't, that wouldn't make you anti-seatbelt if they were bringing that in and you asked to see data that they actually did protect people. I mean, that's fair That's fair to ask those data. Um, I want to ask you about the individual benefit. Oh, no, you finish your thought. Well, no, I was going to talk about the ethics of mandates. You asked me about the benefit, and then we'll talk, we'll talk about the ethics okay. of mandates. Okay, I mean, the, the question I have for you is, um, you know, if you if somebody puts a gun to your head and says, you know, we believe two doses of the vaccine 
although we, we know it's not very durable and protective for mild infection, we do believe in it as a substantive reduction in hospitalization to this date. And somebody put a gun to my head and said, you know, you're saying that, so why do you believe that? And then the answer I gave to them was, you know, as bad as it is, the observational data does suggest that people who've had two doses have just substantively lower rates of hospitalization than people who had no doses at all and no natural infection. And the natural infection people, actually, they do quite well, too. But that's, a, that's another bucket, because to be in that bucket, you had to live to tell the tale. And that's quite a thing, you know, so let's put that aside. But just vaccine versus, you know, um, uh, a naive uh, immune system, I would say there's a reduction in observational data. But of course, it's confounded by the types of people who've chosen to be vaccinated. But my thinking on it is, is that the magnitude of the effect is just so massive that I just can't imagine a confounder so big it will drive the whole effect. So I believe that that effect is, in fact, a causal effect. Um, similarly, when you really look at uh, three versus two, I think you got to be even more careful because the people who rushed out to get three, those are very different people. And so three versus two, I think that effect is quite confounded. But if you let it follow, follow long enough, and when there start to be mandates in place, that, that sort of homogenizes three versus two, and then the effects actually dissipate, and actually it looks like the hospitalization is quite low in both three or two at younger ages. Now, at older ages, it looks like that, I think. So I don't know. That's how I'm approaching it, but I'm curious— if somebody put a gun to your head and said, prove to me, you know, what's the best evidence you have to marshal that there is a still a persistent reduction in hospitalization from two doses? What do you say? Well, yeah, I think I think along similarly along the lines to you that it does still appear that the kind of severe disease rate, the ICU rate, the death rate and so on is lower, um, even though the infection rate is basically converging, if not the same. Um, but, you know, I think if someone said to me, you know, is there really was there really a massive benefit of two doses over one dose? I would have to say we don't have the data, Correct. and it's quite possible that it's quite possible that, for example, a lot of people, especially young people, maybe one dose would have been enough. No, and I, I think um, that's true. Because they... there's yeah, there's a New England Journal paper that actually shows like hospitalization after one dose for the few people who had one dose, and it's a dramatically redu reduced. And I don't know if two doses yeah. buys you much more. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I don't think I would, if someone put a gun to my head, be able to say hand on my heart that two doses superior to one dose and that three doses superior to two dose. For young, especially for young, healthy people. For people over 70, it's now clear that a booster probably does give you significant in additional individual protection. Um, but yeah, were we right to give everyone two doses to start with? I'm, I'm not sure we were right. I mean, I think it would have been fine to give young people one dose and see what happens. And acknowledging that everyone was going to get boosted by post-vaccination infection as soon as that became obvious. And that became obvious within three to six months of the initial trials. Um, I think it's... Um... Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. And I was saying this much. And I actually think that, um, you know, there, there was a fundamentalism, which is like, if you don't do it exactly as the trial did it, you know, you are a bad scientist. But that I think like people don't, I don't know how often people practice based on trials, but you often deviate. I mean, what, what is the purpose of a trial? The trial shows under some set of idealized circumstances, this works. And that's important scientifically because a lot of things under no set of idealized circumstances, it don't work at all. And so you, the first thing is to establish that there, there's something here. There's some spark in this firecracker, you know? But then how do you actually shoot the firecrackers? What's the order you shoot the firecrackers? That is not always proscribed directly by randomized control trials. And often it's not. And if you practice, you know, you're, uh, go, go to anyone's practice and pull their charge and say, why'd you do this, 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 and this? Where's the randomized data? They'll fall apart. They won't last five minutes, and nobody does. And so you use all these things to guide. I think one dose was plausible. We could have done a trial of one versus delayed two. We started to get modeling data. We started to get the UK experience. They did do one dose. They did a huge trial of it in the whole country. And, you know, it looked quite good. I mean, 
their hospitalization was dramatically lowered in those periods, even before dose two. Um, what are you thinking about? Yeah. Yes, I mean, th thoughts on that. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, of course, in, often in reality, the way we practice, the way we use interventions does vary from the trial in lots of really important ways. And um, it's, a, it's a generally recognized problem, and you know more about this than I do, that you know, what regulators require um, people who are developing an intervention in order to get it approved for use, like a vaccine or whatever, often really isn't enough to inform us about what the best way of using it might be. And then it often falls to kind of publicly funded trials and observational data and postdoc stuff to try and work out, uh, which is a real pity. I mean, I think we should demand more for that kind of thing, especially for like really big um, blockbuster interventions. Um, but yeah, the, the trial versus reality thing, that's, that's super important. And I think a lot of people don't get that. And, you know, if you think about, you know, masks or N95 masks that people are proposing that everyone should use, uh, you know, the very best data we have um, on, say, community masking, you know, appears to be a study in villages in Bangladesh, uh, which showed an absolute risk reduction of less than 1% under the most idealized conditions possible that we've talked about previously uh, by authors who really wanted to find something. And that was the best case scenario. Now, in reality, if you walk around people on the street and you see them wearing their surgical mask that they've had on for like, you know, so many days in a row, or it's, you know, sopping wet, or, you know, not, it's not on their fitting on their face and so on. Um, there's all kinds of reasons to think that the that the effectiveness in real life is going to be a lot less than in the trial, just like for any other intervention. Um, and doctors who who believe that the benefit in real life is the same as in the trial just haven't paid attention to you know, other types of interventions that we use. Um, and uh, yeah, so we need to we need to take that into account when we're considering you know, how beneficial something really is. Uh, but like you say, it is important to show in a trial that something is beneficial because lots of things actually fail in those trials. Yeah. Um, I, go on. No, no, no. I was going to, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think when it comes to masking, the trial is going to give you the upper bound best case estimate and real world will only erode it. The upper bound in Bangladesh is modest at best. And that's with, you know, everyone's foot on the gas trying to get that car to go. Um, and in a, in a setting where they're 100% vulnerable, zero natural immunity, zero vaccination, to extrapolate that to San Francisco in the moment, and then that's one thing. But the other thing is like the philosophical point was pre-vaccine, it made sense avoid exposure until you can do the risk-reducing therapy, the vaccination. Now the risk-reducing therapy is there. Um, there's no clear sign there'll be a further risk-reducing therapy that even this Omicron Moderna booster, um, it, you know, I, d I doubt that's going to further reduce the, the endpoints we care about. I'm sure they're not even going to trial it for the endpoints that matter. But anyway, that's another, we can talk about that. But um but once you get to that point that there that you know you've done what you can you've lost weight you got your blood pressure under control and you got vaccinated then i think even if it worked what is the point of delay um but it may not even work because what you do is not in isolation i mean i i see like um you know sometimes i think about like um if you just stand at it on if you if you were sitting on god's shoulder and you watched the world and the way in which people are interacting and you started to look at the people who were taking very strict precautions for themselves it's it's a tiny fraction of the universe of human interactions and in the broader pandemic trajectory it's not going to make make much of a difference and somebody who diligently wears the n95 sacrificing their quality of life and canceling all their vacations so easily can be caught in an elevator one day with a gap and they're going to get it because you know so much of our lives are outside of our hands um and 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 then you wonder what the point was of canceling all those trips and wearing your n95 which is uncomfortable i don't care what anyone says it is uncomfortable um I wanted to ask you about 
but no, finish your thought on this and then we'll talk about oh, well, yeah, so, yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. talking about talking about the, the, huge, the small number of people who are totally careful and what difference that makes. I mean, you know, there's some revealing observations about this. You know, one is that recently that that was it Belgian Antarctic mission got got yes. had a COVID outbreak in Antarctica, um, you know, about yes. as far as they can get from civilization as possible. And, you know, the funny thing is that actually mirrors data from 100 years ago about explorers who would go up and visit the Arctic Circle and Inuit populations up there. And they found that even if all of the explorers were asymptomatic, as soon as they joined the Inuit community, all the Inuit community would come down with a cold, right? Really? And that, oh. Yeah, there's a great paper on that that my colleague George Herriot put me onto and that I can repost. But, and what that shows is that, you know, these viruses, they're everywhere all the time. Uh, they're sustained in human populations and you can't avoid them forever. And COVID-19 has become one of the, another, you know, endemic respiratory virus. Um, and it doesn't matter how careful you are, you're eventually going to catch it. Um, yeah, and maybe just quickly on just to, to talk about that point about what endemicity means, because I think one of the most important yeah, public health messages right now, apart from don't worry about your kids because they're going to be fine, because I think that's a really important public health message. But probably the most important one is is what endemicity means. You know, uh, it's not we're not in the first waves of a pandemic or an epidemic anymore. We're entering the endemic phase. And what that means, you know, epidemiologically, what that means is that on average, the R is always going to be greater than one on average. Now, in winter, it's probably going to be much higher. And in summer, it might even fall below one, but on average in some places. But but on average, it's going to be above one. And that means this virus is going to continue to circulate and mutate, you know, probably forever, you know, barring barring something unusual happening. And if you want to get a sense for what this means, just consider the difference between, um, say, smallpox and measles when they were brought to the Americas by European colonizers and basically wiped out a huge fraction of, of civilization in the Americas um, compared to what smallpox and measles did once everyone in the population had been exposed, you know, once or, you know, a couple of things happen, you know. Yeah, one is that everyone gets infected eventually. The second is that the um, average age at first infection falls. So you start getting infected earlier and earlier in life on average. And the third thing is that for viruses like coronaviruses, once they become endemic, is that reinfections become a larger fraction of the total incidence of infection over time. So that eventually most of the infections we're going to be observing in communities are going to be reinfections of people who've previously been infected. And that's great news because, on, because yeah, post-infection immunity is excellent at preventing severe disease, probably mm. better than vaccines. Of course. So, so it's, it's also better matched to variants because if you get you know, reinfected over and over again, you've got a very broad immunity to a range of variants and to the most recent variants on average. Um, and so the severity of, of each infection is gonna fall. Um, but what it also means is that it changes what we mean by uh, saving someone from COVID you know, because all that it means is any intervention we do that actually works, all it can do is delay their infection. It can't prevent it. And so there's a much lower kind of ethical obligation to do that. Because if we took every step we could to prevent anyone from ever getting infected with a respiratory virus, well, then society would stop. And so endemicity means accepting uh, that we can go back to many of our old social norms. You know, it's so interesting to me. I think that's really well put. The other thing I think a little bit about is HPV, which is, um, to some degree, it's much more easy to control the spread of HPV than it is a respiratory virus because you don't have to come into sexual contact with people. And yet, look at this virus. It's not gone yes. away. 
even in the face of vaccination, you can make a non-avalent, a decavalent. Well, you know, I don't forget. I don't know how many valents they're at now in their vaccine. And 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 that vaccine may have a real benefit, you know, just like our vaccine is a real benefit, but it's not enough to halt it. And um, and interestingly, you know, can you imagine the efforts it would take to stop to put that to heart? It would it would it would rob you of what it means to be human to some degree, similar to the respiratory viruses. I mean, it, it's 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 just a natural adaptation. I hear people say, and I dug into it a little bit, that well, what if the next variant is like way more lethal and as transmissible as Omicron? And I was like, oh my god. And I was like, well, you know, you might as well also worry about the next pandemic flu jumping out of a pangolin, as long as you're worried about things like that. Um, because, in fact, to me, that's even more plausible than this getting in this way. And and the reason I feel that way is, um, you know, it's not by accident that the place we exchange gas is not the tip of your tongue, but the bottom of your alveolar sac. That's not by accident. That's an evolutionary adaptation because now what you've done is you've protected the gas exchange from the tip of your tongue. And there's a lot of piping between there and the gas exchange that's protecting you against all invaders. And and you've also incentivized viruses that spread to spend their time up top. You know, a virus that heavily replicates in the oropharynx and then blows off high viral load that doesn't waste its time delving into the alveolar, it's going to have a huge selection advantage over a virus that goes to the bottom of the lungs. Then I was reading some of these studies where people argue that early in a viral life cycle, it's very chaotic and unpredictable evolutions may occur. And later in viral life cycle, it's more these kinds of fitness drives that play a bigger role. But I looked at that, and that is not empirical data. This is the same model the same shit model they're always show it's all the same they always go back to some model that they have invented i was like this didn't you didn't prove it you're not going in the fossil record and digging through viruses and so to me i mean omicron is incredibly fit we have to give it credit i mean it spreads very fast it's a fit virus it's hard to believe that they can mutate in a way to be even fitter and if it is mutating in a way to be fitter, I think it's far more likely to replicate heavily in the mouth and the oropharynx and not waste its time going to the lung. So in my mind, the potential for variant as quick spreading, even more deadly, you know, it's lower, you know, um, thoughts? Well, I mean, my main thought about this is that we need to turn down the fear and people need to yeah. stop worrying. And, and, and um, yeah, look, I've looked into some of that evolutionary stuff too and tried to find people say, Oh, on average, things evolve to be less pathogenic or whatever, but it's pretty hard to actually pin that down as, yeah. a, as any kind of general rule. But, I mean, here's the counterfactual, right? We already have four major uh, endemic coronaviruses that have been um, transmitted billions of times in humans over hundreds of years, and they've never got more deadly, say, for example, to children. Um, they're not trivial viruses, you know? No, if nursing home residents get infected with so-called common cold coronaviruses, they can have a high mortality, you know, 15%, 8% in some studies. That's a pretty that's a pretty dangerous coronavirus. You know who said that home. in the in the March 17th stat piece? Satan himself, John Yonides. He, he had that he had the data point in there that, you know, other yeah. Kind of, yeah, and he was right. That's yeah. right. I mean, they're not, yeah. they're, they're not trivial viruses, yeah. but they've never, they've never kind of evolved into something that's yeah, incredibly lethal, incredibly transmissible. And that just suggests to me that it's, you know, not going to happen with this virus either. I mean, that's a pretty good counterfactual. I think that's well put. And and the number of replications has got to be, you know, you know, 10 to the power of nine or 12 or 15 times as many as this replications, even though this is spread like wildfire, you're talking about thousands of years of human history uh, or more, you know, who knows? So that's a really excellent point. Okay. Um, this is something that I think we need to talk about. When people 20 years from now look back on this time, what are they going to say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think about this a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, we're so far 
um, from the normal of 2019 now. I think it's hard for a lot of people to imagine, you know, a time beyond this kind of pandemic where people are going to look back. Um, you know, I think, I think the number one thing people are going to say is uh, we betrayed children. You know, how could, they, how could they have done so much harm to children for a virus that was clearly not dangerous to children and for, you know, basically no real evidence that doing that stuff to children was going to really reduce risk in society. I think a lot of people are going to angry, be angry about that, including the generation of children who are coming through. And you start to see that in the media now, young people mm -hmm. expressing their kind of despair and anger about this, um, about masking in schools and so on. I think that's going to be really high on the list. I think, um, I think the betrayal of trust uh, by public health authorities um, and, you know, being dishonest with uh, with society is, is going to be high on the list and that's not going to do us any good i suspect um rising inequality you know that, that we that we instituted these interventions that harmed the poor and that harmed the global poor and that mainly benefited the global rich both directly uh through kind of you know whatever suppressing transmission but also indirectly through increasing their wealth um and i also think people will say there were major missed opportunities in this pandemic and for me, the two biggest missed opportunities were a missed opportunity for social reform. So, for example, making sure everyone can have paid sick leave. So if you're sick, you don't need to come to work. Now that's a that's a you know, that's a piece of social reform. It might not be easy, um, but but it could be done. And I think, we, you know, that hasn't really happened. Um, oh, there's all kinds of kind of smaller points of social reform that I think could have happened that the pandemic revealed problems in society that we could start to fix when people started to say, um, build back better or something in 2020. Yeah. I think we so far, we haven't really done that. People are still, still too busy arguing about, about the pandemic. And the other major missed opportunity that's kind of relevant to this program is, uh, is missed opportunities for public health research. You know, yeah. everyone used to say what a disaster it was during the SARS epidemic yeah. that nobody did some great trials of non-pharmaceutical interventions of antivirals and so on. They were just kind of throwing stuff out there and we never got good data. And everyone said, what a pity. We need to be ready next time and do those trials. And <laughs> have been precious little trials you know especially in high income countries who are the, you know have the most money to do them and i think that's a huge missed opportunity you pick an intervention you can run a trial on it and we've run it run a trial on uh, hardly any oh so that this is a really great exercise i mean i think i i think about this too a lot i think it's such an interesting thought experiment because i think you know there's there's something about like when you're out of the moment of panic you can think clearly you know just like when you wake up sober, you know, it's like, it's like that kind of moment. And I think people will have that moment. And so a lot of people who feel ardent now will start to see things quite clear. And uh, top of my list is always the children. Um, everything we did for kids will just look so barbaric and cruel and inhuman. Um, and that how we rationalize it to ourselves by, you know, I saw somebody tweet a figure of kids who died of COVID-19 and kids who died of flu, like during the COVID-19 period when world was disrupted. And they're like, see, and then I, I made my kids who died of COVID-19 and kids who died inside closed schools inside a closed school zero kids died and nobody in there to die so you know it's like so misleading um you know this closures will be awful the closing play dates will be awful making them wear masks will look awful the n95s they're wearing in some districts now will look awful for compulsory vaccination will look awful coercive vaccination will look awful and then i think ignoring myocarditis in the youth when the safety signal was clear making no effort to mitigate that harm which is so mitigatable by spreading the doses or lowering the dose or running a study and trying to find some balance or or counting omicron as a dose or so many strategies to mitigate that was not done 
The kids is number one on my list. I think it'll look so inhuman and barbaric and I don't know. I, you know, I always say it'll be like the Iraq war in terms of like, I mean, the reason I say that is that I remember, I remember feel that like way people talked about like it was just and then like eight, four years later, they all felt it was unjust. Um, I think people will feel that. Um, the other things I want to say is lockdown. I write here, lockdown is like bloodletting. And what I mean by that, you know, they used to bloodlet for everything, pneumonia and cancer and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But now we actually do bloodlet for two conditions, polycythemia vera. You sometimes do a little bloodletting and hemochromatosis. So it's not that bloodletting never works. It works for two things, but not 200,000 different things. And I think lockdown will be the same because they'll find like there are some pockets, some windows where it did work. You know, for, there was some net benefit to some people in some island nations remote from other place. You know, who knows? There'll be some place like that. But most of us were bloodletting George Washington. We were bloodletting for pneumonia. And I think like most of the lockdowns will just look so barbaric and foolish. Um, I have RCTs on my list, number one, because I just think that, you know, not I was like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Early in my medical career, I had this realization that there's something in medicine that people like don't want to do randomized trials when they ought to. And that led me to a lot of work. And for years, I battle like the cardiologist and they're like, you know, having dinner with Abbott and they're putting in an impella and they're like, there's no way you can ever randomize an impella. And then five years before, they're like, there's no way you can randomize a Swan-Gans catheter. There's no way you can randomize a balloon pump for drug looting stand. And then lo and behold, we do those randomized trials eventually and oh, it didn't work. It didn't work. It didn't work. You know, but I never thought, I mean, I was surprised that, you know, the, that, that, the average public health expert is like the cardiologist and the impella. Like they just love their masks and they love their plexiglass and whatever. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm just surprised that they just really, the unwillingness to run like, I don't know, like we can count on like, I think Paul Glas Paul Glasius has his um, list of randomized trials for non-pharmacological interventions. I saw like 15 different things, you know, very limited, but like 15 things, you know, when you've lost 20 trillion in the economy. Um, and then I think, you know, we, you talk about inequality and social reforms and stuff, and I think that's the most volatile thing. Like, I don't know. I, I, I really do worry. John had a piece in Tablet this week on, like, democracy and pandemic as a threat to democracy. And I think, I mean, I think we will see toppling of democracies in different nations. I don't know which ones. I hope to live in one that doesn't topple. Um, but, I mean, I think either a strong progressive reform might come out of this or totalitarianism. But it's a massive perturbation, and people are discontent. And, um, and then the last thing, to echo your point, trust in institutions. You know, I'm working on a piece like about the lies of the CDC or what I call science as propaganda, you know, where if they have like, I don't know, you know, when you have observational data, you have a lot of flexibility in your analysis plan. And let's say my goal is I want five-year-olds to be vaccinated like tomorrow. Well, now suddenly it looks like after COVID, you got some diabetes, don't you? And that paper is very flawed. Like it doesn't really prove that, but they have routinely put forth evidence that is bad and it's so wedded to the fact they want to achieve a policy objective and that is just shredding i mean they might as well bury their institution because no one will ever trust you it's so nakedly transparent um and maybe the person doing the science should not be the entity setting the policy there needs to be some firewall because the temptation to do science to justify your policy is so great um and so i'm so disheartened to see that and and then like the, you know, I always, I said like the same person who would tweet that like, um, 
you know, they, they, they would call like any analysis of VAERS and myocarditis, that's misinformation. And then the next day they tweet like uh, that the COVID causes diabetes in kids. Like there's just no consistent evidence framework that they're applying. They're just picking and choosing what they like. Okay. So those are my thoughts. I mean, I think we're on the same. Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I, mean, yeah, I think there's been some appalling misuse of data, including by the CDC in their own journal, where they've cherry picked stuff and then published it as if it's kind of careful research and then, and then made policy on that basis. I think it's awful. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm pu- I mean, I'm not surprised that public health people were no better than cardiologists um, because as I've said previously, it's like there's, there are two crises in public health that a lot of people don't want to recognize. And one's a crisis of evidence and another is a crisis of ethics. And I think a lot of people in public health tell them tell themselves this story that they can be like Jon Snow in the cholera outbreak in London. And they just like find where the well is with the cholera and turn off the turn off the tap and it's all going to be good. It's a simple intervention and you couldn't possibly randomize and that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think that attitude is overly simplistic and leads to kind of um, bad thinking. And um, as does this idea that it wouldn't be ethical to randomize people, like, just like you said with the cardiologist who said it wouldn't be ethical to randomize people for this stent or that stent or whatever, because we're sure that this yeah. one works better or whatever. It's like, well, you can't be sure until you've done the trial. And um, of course, it's ethical to randomize. And, uh, you know, likewise, I think for vaccines in young, healthy people, we could have let the placebo arm go on longer in vaccine trials. Yeah. Um, any any uh non-pharmaceutical intervention you want to choose, you know, masks, uh, plexiglass screens, ventilation. Where's the randomized trial of those kind of mobile ventilation machines where you could just have randomized, say, on or, you know, on placebo version where it just yeah. makes a humming yeah. sound yeah. and yeah. and then see if those ventilator machines actually make, make a difference because those ventilation companies right now, they're making bank and we have no idea whether mobile ventilation machines will reduce the incidence of respiratory viruses in it to any meaningful degree. I mean, there's reason to think that it might, but we need to run that trial. And the idea, the idea that it would be unethical to run that trial, people don't understand. Um, there, there's a huge um, moral obligation and ethical obligation to get high quality data when you're gonna roll out an intervention um, just to make sure we're using resources appropriately. But there's, an even stronger ethical obligation if you're going to mandate something. If you're going to mandate something, you really need to know, is it going to work? And what are the harms going to be? Uh, and, you know, in a very huge way, we fail to do, fail to fulfill that obligation. And if you don't have the data, well, you have an obligation to run the trial. You know, as soon as you bring in the mandate, you can bring it in in one place, then another place, and another place. You can collect the data. You can show um, a benefit systematically of any non-pharmaceutical intervention, but... And you've got a strong obligation to do it. It's, it's not just that it would be ethical to randomize people. It's that you you almost must run the trial. You know, you must have come up with some design to collect totally evidence agree. to make sure what you're doing is beneficial and not net harmful. You know, and along those lines, we are talking about mechanical interventions. We're talking about, a, you know, HEPA filter in the room. We're talking about pills. Um, let's ex- extend it to even strategies and testing. So, you know, you can do randomized trials right now in schools. Here's what we're doing. Rich schools, of course, are doing like, you know, once weekly saliva testing and it's pooled and then individual, if anyone tests positive, then everyone in the class is thrown out for five days and 10 days. And like every part of that can be randomized. Like, should you be doing it ACE? Should you just have everyone do weekly or twice weekly or never at all? And then if somebody tests positive, should you close the class or just ask that person to step out? And if you close the class, should it be for five days or three days or 10 days? And that can all be randomized. And, you know, if I were betting, I would bet 
that and if you and, and the question is what do you power it for and if you power it for the endpoint of like how many cases do you have on the tally board then i suspect more testing begets cases but if you power it for the endpoints of how many teachers are in the hospital and how many administrators are sick and how many kids are actually um you know uh like f fevering to 104 then i suspect it's all theater i mean i think the vast majority is theater and and the reason it matters to know it in a study is the disruption is massive i mean right now in the united states um like this woman put it to me well she said like the moment she's an er doctor works on the front lines every day she said the moment the pandemic changed in my mind was the moment i stopped worrying about getting sick and i started worrying about testing positive because getting sick she was worried in the beginning will i die who will raise my children and you know who's going to take my place in life uh she's worried as a lot of people were reasonably of course me too um but then suddenly she got vaccinated and now suddenly it's oh god if i test positive uh, you know my kids have to go out of school and i can't who's going to cover my shifts and those kinds of things and and that's a human thing we've even we've inserted that and so you know thoughts on randomizing testing strategies yeah i mean i, I think we should be running a trial on absolutely any intervention you know especially anything that um costs resources uh, is burdensome to people or is required of them um we should be running trials on on any of them um, I mean, my own view is that we should just stop testing young, healthy people altogether uh, and that we should go back to what we used yeah. to do uh, for basic community infection control measures, which is that in schools, for example, you know, if a child is clearly symptomatic and unwell, they need to go home yeah. and anyone else who basically looks well, well, then they, they can come to school. I mean, that's what we should go back to for everything, workplaces, schools, society in general. And there's no reason why not, um, except for a whole lot of vested interests and fear, probably. Um and yeah, I mean, it, we've, we've created so much fear. I mean, me personally, when I downloaded those data from China in February 2020, I was like, well, I'm fine. You know, mm. uh, young, young, healthy adults are fine. Kids are fine. Um, and the, nothing's changed. You know, people who claim that there was a lot of uncertainty, I think uncertainty about COVID is massively overblown. Right. Uh, right. Be because that the age severity gradient is basically the same now as it was then. Um, it hasn't changed. And, uh, you know, all, all that's happened in the meantime is people you know, try to try to fear monger about long COVID in children. And then that's been shown to be not a thing. Um, but, and just to go back to your point about um, lockdowns as bloodletting, I mean, and, and yeah, the kind of harms involved there. Uh, yeah. I think, I think in most cases, lockdowns will be shown to be a public health catastrophe, or at yeah. least that, that will, I don't know, they won't be shown to be because we didn't collect the right type of data, but, but I think public opinion will change. And you, yeah. like you say, maybe in a few restricted circumstances, right. you know, that was kind of um, potentially okay. But most of the time it was, it was a public health catastrophe. Um, and we should be clear, you know, the word lockdown, which was never in any uh, pandemic preparedness document comes from prison management, right? Mm. It's, it's the way you treat, it's the way you treat prisoners when they riot. And I, I'm pretty sure it was first used in San Quentin prison, you know, not far, not far from you. Right. Um, and I'm sorry, but you know, public health, <laughs> before this pandemic, there was a consensus that public health should not be punitive and it shouldn't be run like prisons yeah. uh, because we need to cooperate with people. We need people to trust us. And I think people are disappointed uh, to be treated like criminals and prisoners and disappointed that so few people spoke out. You know, you know when I talked to Martin Kulsdorf, he says, very similar to what you said, the moment he knew, you know, he has like young children and he said like the moment he knew, he looked through China's data set and he asked himself, how old were the people who died? And he kept looking for kids and there just weren't kids. It was all older people. And that's when he said he knew this was not a virus with an affinity for the youth. And he said that's when he was able to say, 
it's not it's going to be fine for my kids and uh but you know we're the opposite now in america i think people are still super worried and you know i i don't know how to help them like you know i don't know we can talk about that in a second but i want to talk about this other issue first joe rogan um you know he is um I don't know. He's a comedian who started a podcast many years ago in the United States, and he's got like, I don't know, 11 million downloads an episode. He's like 11 times more popular than our news shows. And, uh, you know, I listen often, and I think he's often quite earnest, and he has long, like, you know, he'll have you on for four hours to talk, and he won't splice or edit a thing. And so that's, that's I think, appealing to a lot of people, like, you know, that that's so in the world of media where you worry that they're going to cut you inappropriately. He doesn't. And, you know, he has a I think, uh, affinity for the people who've been pushed out by um, polite society, and he brings them on his show. And recently he had two people, this Malone and McCullough. And, uh, you know, there's like six hours of interviews, but I was asked by Unheard Magazine to like, you know, I don't know, go through the interviews and say what they got right and wrong. And I did. And I listened to them like twice, and it took me like eight hours, and I was like keeping all these notes, and I tried, and I, I tried to write it up. And like, I, I think like overall, like, you know, I disagree with them a lot, you know, because they're talking about how, you know, a cocktail of like a vitamin and ivermectin hydroxychloroquine, if you take it really early, it's going to help you. And I'm like, you know, I don't know, prove it to me, you know, do a study and I'll believe it. But and then I also find there's like a bizarre logic in, in some of that community, which is like COVID is like both very, very mild, but also and something that young people have nothing to fear, like th that side of politically, they see that. But then they also believe like you definitely need to take a lot of pills really quick, really early. <laughs> and I'm like, but if it's really mild and most people recover, why do you need to take a fistful of pills right off the bat? You know, I don't know. Okay. Anyway, so that's the part I'm skeptical of. Some of their vaccine claims were like, I don't know. It's tough to parse. Like when they're like, oh, you'll have T-cell exhaustion and get unusual cancers. And I was like, I don't know, maybe, but like, you know, no one's seen that, you know, no one has seen that yet. And that like, it'll go to the ovary. They always like to say like, it'll go to the ovary. And like, you know, like when you pump a mouse full of it and you kill the mouse and you cut their ovary, you'll find a little bit of it in there. But I was like, I don't know if you gave the mouse a Kit Kat and cut the ovary, you might find some Kit Kat, you know, or, or some shampoo, or you might even find if you gave him that fistful of pills, you just took some of that's in the ovary. I don't know what's in an ovary. But just because it goes to the ovary doesn't mean it's doing anything in the ovary. You know, I don't know. Um, you know, that's kind of misleading. So I think they say a lot of things that are misleading and fear-mongering and I don't know what their goals are. But some of the things they say are actually true, like myocarditis is downplayed and society wants to squelch people who are dissenters and blah, blah, blah. And I guess what I'm interested in is like the academy because I really do think that 10 years ago, there would not be a single professor who would say, you need to shut this guy's podcast down, a guy with 11 million followers who is open-minded and far-ranging and will have, a pro, you know, have people on both sides of issues. Like, no one would say, shut that up. But now they're signing petitions and everything is misinformation, everything is disinformation, you know, um, to the point those words have lost meaning, um, you know, GBD are bad people and everyone's, a, you know, I mean, I don't know what to think. And so I guess I'm curious... We've, I guess we've talked about it before, but like, where is this culture war headed? Like this war about knowledge and who's free to talk about things. You know, you talk about 20 years from now, where are we headed here? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not an expert in this kind of in this kind of political science stuff, but I'm worried about it too. And yeah, I, I read a report by, I forget which um, kind of international democracy institute. And the first line of the report was, democracy is at risk. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, I, I think that's kind of an understatement. Um, and yeah, I think a, a big problem in the academy 
uh, is also silencing voices from within within the academy. I mean, not, not just silencing kind of Joe Rogan or Correct. podcasters or whatever, but but also silencing voices within the academy, which I think is a disaster. And I think in, in yeah, I can already see people backpedaling, right? So some of the people who supported zero COVID, suddenly they're coming out saying, oh, actually the virus isn't going away. I see that. One UK professor in particular, I see her. <laughs> yeah. That's right. And, um, yeah. and, and I think- But, but good for her. Better to backpedal now than to stay on the, tr- the losing train. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna, I want to welcome all these people back <laughs> yeah. to reality yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. and to kind, of, to kind of join the team of moving society forward. But yeah. um, instead of, I don't know what they were doing before- but yeah, I think I think in five or ten years, a lot of people will be embarrassed about the views that they held or that they didn't speak out. You know, people are going to say, "Where were the critics when all this crazy stuff happened?" You know, and I'm I'm lucky with this because my colleague George Harriet and I, within six months of the pandemic starting, we wrote a paper in in a small Australian journal editorial, and we said. Uh, lockdowns are harming the poor, school closures are harming children, and governments aren't being transparent about. Uh, the risks at stake and the decisions being made and that we want more proportionality in policy. But I think a lot of people were afraid to speak out because, you know, it was very easy to get attacked, you know, potentially lose your career and so on. Um, so, you yeah, know, I don't, I don't, on that I don't issue know though, like, I don't know. I was like, I was like looking at somebody who, I don't know, sometimes you see somebody who's like afraid to speak out and it's like their passion is like, providing food security to people who need it in urban neighborhoods or something like that, or I don't know, something something like that, which is like something I like actually like very much believe in. And then I think about like, you could work on that for 40 years and you might make some substantive, you know, difference and you'll affect the lives of, you know, so many people in so much amount. The choices we're making right now are affecting the lives of those like people who are um, uh, uh, suffering like that, except like, you know, a hundred times as much and like in this moment, we're we're quite quiet about it. Yeah, and, and just 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 yesterday, I saw that there was a kind of, Alex Broadbent, who's a like famous uh, philosopher of medicine and epidemiology, wrote a paper about how lockdowns are inegalitarian, so that they, they, they harm the poor, and we you know we're finally getting this kind of dialogue out there, uh, which I think is really good news. Um, but meanwhile, uh, I maybe just want to step back to to talk about to talk about mandates because. You know, mandates are a key kind of jewel in the culture war right now, um, and they may be emblematic of kind of other things we might do wrong. Yeah, let, let's let's talk about the ethics of mandates. Uh, any possible ethical justification there could have been for mandates is basically over. Uh, you know, the yeah. only I mean, a standard a standard principle in public health is that the only strong ethical justification for strong coercion, you know, when we really force something on you, say by threatening to take you out of society or take away your career, is that it has to prevent harm to others. And in the case of vaccines, you know, vaccines, if they prevent you from infecting other people, well, then there is a strong ethical reason for you to get vaccinated. There is a strong ethical reason for policy to try and make sure as many people as possible do. Maybe not to the degree, maybe not the kind of mandates we're doing now, but at least some kind of, you know, strong encouragement. But once it's been shown that they're not blocking transmission, at least, right. you know, after the first few months, and it doesn't really make a difference to other people's risk or epidemiology overall, mandates are, are unjustifiable. Um, and uh, I know some people feel like mandates might be justified for other reasons. They yeah, might let's be talk about that. Yes. Yeah. Hospital overload and things like that. Let's talk about yeah. that. Yeah. That's right. So they say, oh, no, 
Um, it does harm other people because if you go to hospital unvaccinated with your COVID, you're taking away hospital resources that other people could use. Right. I, I don't like that argument um, because it, it sets a very clear precedent. Um, it, it sets a precedent for public health intervening in individuals' lives to reduce their hospitalization risk for any reason because it harms others. So, you know, public, public health could, you know, knock on your door and, uh, you know, force you to change your diet if you become obese, for example, or, right. um, it, you know, interfere in your life in all these kinds of ways just because, just because it would reduce your hospitalization risk and that could take pressure off in winter so that other people could access hospital right. care better. So let me give you, I, I agree with you so much, and let me give you two examples I was thinking about. So obviously hospitals get most overloaded in winter, often for respiratory virus reasons and other reasons. Um, what if the policy was when the hospitals get to 80% capacity, all the ski resorts close? Or we suspend the sale of alcohol? Because there's a little bit bad when people booze it up. You get a little atrial fibrillation. So we'll stop selling alcohol when hospital gets to 80%. We will... Um, you know, we will ban uh, ski resorts or other sort of recreational venues when it goes up. Um, I think these will be deeply unpalatable, and yet um, it's a precedent established. If you think the goal is that somehow it's justified by by averting hospitalizations, yeah, that's right. And so, yeah, if that's the society that people want to live in, then yeah, sure, we can, we can <laughs> mandate vaccines for that reason. But yeah. that's not the society most people want to live in, and so um, I don't think that's a that's a good enough justification. And also the justification that oh. Uh, you just don't realize it's your, it's beneficial for you, but we're going to mandate it for your own good. Well, that that's not um, kind of consistent with public health ethics norms uh, that that we force you to do something just because we think it's good for you. If I can um, be perfectly so think, honest, like in terms of what, where is this motivation coming from? At least in the United States, I mean, I think um, public health is allied with the political left in this country, deeply allied. So much so that. One of the hypocrisies that emerged in the summer of 2020 was there were two sets of large public gatherings. There were gatherings to support the president, Trump, and those were always spreading virus bad. The Sturgis motorcycle rally was, quote unquote, killing people. And there were rallies to protest real, I think, racial discrimination and the legal prompted by George Floyd's um, brutal killing. Um, that I think is a really well-motivated um, protest, but those were acceptable. And and the moment the public health experts said these were okay protests and these are bad gatherings, but they're both outside, I mean, you were shredding credibility. And then, I mean, you're shredding credibility and you're really turning public health into an instrument of the political left, which uh, nobody wants that to be the case, even those of us on the political left. And then the second thing I think is that the people who are unvaccinated in this country, they're not on our team. They're on the other team. They're on the right team. And we don't like those people. And so if you want to, I mean, I think people get sick pleasure. They should be fired from their job and pushed out of work. And it's a way to retaliate for the fact that they shoved their Supreme Court justices on our court. You know, they've punished us and we're retaliating in a different mechanism. And so public health becomes both a tool of law enforcement and a tool to punish your political opponents. And, and that is so damaging to the credibility. That's right. I think that's awful. I mean, public health has to be for everyone. By definition, you know, it's about, uh, you know, maximizing public health, uh, keeping in mind fairness and liberty and so on. It needs to be for the whole of society, because if it's not, things are going to break down. People won't trust you. People won't do what you want. Um, and also, it's just to justify this level of kind of social intervention requires that you're kind of you know, doing something for, for as many people as possible um, and not for arbitrary reasons. And I agree. Uh, the way those different protests were treated, same thing happened in Australia, by the way. Really? It's, it's, 
if it's a Black Lives Matter protest, all the public health people said, oh, it's probably okay and so on. And if it was an anti-lockdown protest or something, I say it's a super, <laughs> it's, good, it's a definite super. <laughs> right, you yeah. Know, out, outdoor protests are just never going to be high risk for super spreading. It doesn't matter who's doing them or how much you like them or what they're right. protesting for or how many masks they wear. Um, it just, it doesn't make a difference. And so I think I agree that it's embarrassing the way those two very similar things were treated. And that's the kind of thing where people can really point to it and say, you're not telling the truth one, you know, one way or the other, you're not telling the truth. And, but, um, but in where we are now, it really looks Given, given that vaccines you know, don't block transmission or have a very tiny effect, it looks insane to fire people, you know, especially, quote unquote, essential workers for being unvaccinated or to or in the case of, you know, say, places like France and I think Austria and so on, excluding people from society and kind of you know, the always really punitive actions. Um, it looks crazy to do that. It's and so, I really I really hope yeah. they're going to wind that back a bit. I mean, crazy, unjust, and I mean, I, I have to be honest. I mean, I didn't think that I would be, you know, an associate professor on the verge of being full professor, somebody who studied, studied epidemiology, published 300 papers, two books, uh, has been outspoken on a lot of issues, and that I myself will be forcibly coerced at the penalty of unemployment to get a vaccine, a third dose, which I do not think is in my best interest. You haven't proven it to me. And I have to say, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good because, uh, I don't know. I mean, not that they should coerce people who didn't do all the training and the specific methods to understand the risk proposition, but to coerce the person who did? Come on, what are you doing to me? You coerced me, and I'm going to remember it, and I'm going to get you for it. I'm going to get you. I don't know when I'm going to get you, but I'm going to get all of you. I'm going to get the whole system that perpetuated this coercion because— I don't know if you feel like this. I mean, there has to. I don't know if we need a new constitutional amendment to what are the limits of the pub of the state in public health emergencies. I think people will be clamoring for it in four years. They will be. I mean, just as like the, as public sentiment shifts, there will be limits. the The president and governor will no longer be able to self declare emergency powers, um, and they and universities and employers may not be able to coerce people to do things like this. And I think it needs to be legally codified as rights of people, and maybe under some very limited circumstances with some appeal process, some review, some independent dialogue, it can happen. But I think the current system just shows it's ripe for abuse um, and it just cannot happen again. Yeah, it's absolutely, absolutely right for abuse. And so many places in the world have spent basically the last two years or more in a state of emergency, you know, which normally was, is kind of reserved for wartime, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, a key part of democracy is having those checks and balances. And I think, uh, yeah, as I maybe have said previously, at a minimum, we need to know, you know, who's on a committee, who's making the decisions, and on what basis are they making those decisions? Right. What evidence do they have? And don't show me another bad model. You know, I want, I want to, I want to see, I want to see really, I want to see I excellent evidence, and I want to see consideration of the kind of ethical things about who's going to get, who's going to benefit, who's going to get harmed, and so on. And we haven't had any of that. And I agree, there's there's a huge need for reform in public health powers because it's quite clear they've been abused um, you know they've been used beneficially um, it, during during this pandemic in lots of ways um, yeah. don't get me wrong uh, but also there's been huge overreach there's been mm -hmm. far too many liberty restrictions there've been far too many lockdowns there's been far too much uh, harm and coercion and yeah this kind of suddenly forcing people to have boosters in, in in most places there's been zero consultation you know there's been zero forum for yeah, open debate among experts about 
Well, how much is the benefit of the booster? What's the risk of a third dose in a male under 40 and so on? Yeah. Do, the, do, the, do the benefits really outweigh the risks? What's the effect on transmission? It, it's just been snap mandate. Um, and that's not justifiable in my view. I think that the reason that issue really irritates me is that, you know, it's always like, should you give one? And then for the people who've gotten one, do they benefit from two? And for the people who gotten two, do they benefit from three? And every time I see somebody tweeting about it, it's always like, well, people who got three are doing better than people who got zero. I was like, well, that's not what we're debating. And then the next thing they say is, well, among people who got one, rates of myocarditis for getting the second are pretty low. I was like, because you're including 80-year-old women in that. That's not the population I'm worried about, you know? I have no doubt that that, that population would benefit. But why are you lumping in the 12-year-old boy? And so I just view it. It's so dishonest, and I, I don't know what to think. But let me ask you about vaccinating 5 to 11. Five to, like, right now, there is um, a California state senator who is working hard and fast to get it, to get it mandated. Um, the governor has already announced that there's a mandate when the vaccine has full regulatory approval. It'll be mandated for 5 to 11-year-olds in California. But this person wants it to be mandated without a personal belief exemption as an EUA right now. Are we going to throw all these kids out? Um, Meanwhile, the UK will not vaccinate, they're not encouraging parents to vaccinate a healthy 5 to 11 year old. And Norway is, in fact, encouraging them not to vaccinate. Norway says, we prefer you don't. We're talking about a vaccine construct that uses an old two year old spike protein. Um, we're talking about mandating it in some kids who've already recovered from natural infection under the penalty of being thrown out. I mean, what are we doing? Yeah, so I mean, I, I personally, yeah, I've written, I've written a paper on this. I have another one under review. Um, my own view is that young, healthy children do not need to be vaccinated. If their parents want to vaccinate them, uh, and you know, we have some good data, maybe that's fine. I mean, so far, all we have is what a five thousand child trial or something run yeah. by the person who, who made the vaccine. I mean, that's really with, not enough. With the primary endpoint of antibody against historical control. Historical. What the hell is that? I mean, yeah, it's, it's, we really don't have good data, but once we have good data, if we get it and, it and we've got good data on harms and we go to the regulator and it gets approved, if some parents want to vaccinate their children, fine. Yeah. Should we force people to vaccinate their children? I think it, it's potentially the recipe for a public health disaster and for the collapse in trust in vaccines if things go wrong. Um, and I, I certainly don't think uh, a mandate or a requirement on children for this virus, for this vaccine is justifiable. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, you mentioned personal belief exemption. Uh, yeah, I've got a personal belief. I believe in evidence-based medicine <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, and, and yeah, evidence-based yeah. public health. Yeah. Until you show me adequate evidence, well, it shouldn't be mandated. You know, that's one personal belief. Uh, and and getting, you know, there's lots of times, as we said earlier, there's lots of times where there's a mandate, but you can get an exemption. It's not easy. You maybe have to go sign a form, explain why, discuss the risks and benefits. You can get one. I think that's, you know, a much more reasonable form of mandate than one with no exemption, for example. Yeah. Um, but the kids thing, yeah, based on the data we have now, uh, it's perfectly reasonable for countries like Norway and maybe countries like the UK to adopt a strategy where or a policy where healthy young children are going to get exposed to this virus and it looks like that's going to be mild it looks like the first infection is usually the most dangerous and then afterwards reinfections are less and less dangerous maybe until you become an elderly person we don't really have the long-term data yet mm -hmm. um, so it's perfectly reasonable to have a policy where you don't vaccinate young healthy children based on the data that we have um, and if and yeah, Norway, you know, they're not exactly famous for kind of, you know, putting their children at risk or, you know, yeah. having irresponsible public health decisions and so on. Um, 
and yeah, I posted something about this the other day. In the long term, uh, COVID nineteen, yeah, I think, I is going to be- is going to become like other coronaviruses and uh, other endemic coronaviruses. And by the time you're five years old, uh, if you're a child who has lived five years, uh, there's a ninety percent chance you've had at least one coronavirus infection. Most children have had three by that time, uh, or you know, up to three or more. Um, and so I think most children will have caught COVID by the time they turn five. So, I mean, how could it possibly be justifiable on the basis of individual risks and benefits mm-hmm. or on the basis of public health benefit to, to vaccinate children against COVID-19 who've already recovered from SARS-CoV-2 infection, which most mostly will be very minimally symptomatic. I, I, can't, see how that, I can't see how that's justified. And I've been strongly against this for a long, for a long time. And I'm, I'm worried about, about how it's gonna look in five or 10 years. Uh, I'm I'm worried that it's even permissible. I mean, you know, like the regulators are they they've passed the baton to parents and say you make the choice. Parents are not in the bright position to make the choice, and uh, and they've squelched dissent and they've not had advisory committees and they're steamrolling opposition. They didn't do the studies correctly. And in the cohort in that randomized trial, among people who had pre-existing immunity, there were no cases in either arm. So nobody knows what the vaccine is doing. Yeah, I mean, it's quite clear that, that post-infection immunity is excellent and probably better than vaccination yeah. in lots of ways. And I would just add one thing to passing the bat on to parents. No, first, we spent two years terrorizing parents, yes. you know, exaggerating yes. the risks to children, um, and then we passed the bat on to them. And of course, they all want their children protected against a virus that they believe is dangerous. But it's just the evidence suggests that it's not very dangerous. Kids in N95, um, do you think it should be an N95 or a KF94, those are the only two choices. No. <laughs> but the Berkeley Unified School District is passing them out. Preschools are doing it. Um, then, and this is what got me. You saw the, the New York Times reporter who covers education policy. Did I tell you this? She tweeted, where can I get my preschooler a KF94? And the reason it really just got me was like, I was like, you have the pulpit of the New York Times. Your question shouldn't be, where do you get it? It should be, who the hell is asking my child to wear this and why? What are well, that's the question. Who is doing this? And I guess I, I don't know if I fully understand why the U.S. leaned in hard with the toddler masking, the two to five. I don't know why we leaned in so hard. Um, and But I certainly don't understand why we're doing KF94s or N95s. And by the way, and then I read, I read somebody said, oh, my child doesn't mind it because, you know, um, they uh, they have a gap at the nose. And I'm like, well, that's just not even doing that. It's not even, okay, fine. It's not even doing it. Just a decoration that, all right, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I think, I think N95 masks, they work well in a very restricted set of circumstances. They work well uh, the way we used to use them, which is healthcare practitioners, when they're going into a room with someone who has, say, tuberculosis or chickenpox, uh, they fit their new N95. Right. They put it on their mouth, they check it, then they go in, right. then they come out, then they throw the mask away, you know, right. into, a, into a room with negative pressure ventilation and so on. Uh, they work quite well in that circumstance. Yeah. Mind yeah. you, you know, I've spoken to infectious diseases experts who say, maybe when you see the kid with, the, the kid with chicken pox, maybe you want to take the mask off because you want to get boosted, your immunity to varicella boosted by getting exposed mm. to chicken pox because otherwise you're going to get shingles, right? Mm. And so it's interesting. Like, yeah. That's an interesting, interesting thing, but just let's set that aside. N95 masks work really well in that circumstance. Now we've got to a situation where hospitals are mandating them everywhere. And I walk around hospitals and I see people who they've had their fit test, they've shaved their beard, they've, you know, they've, they've chosen the right mask, but still I can see gaps on their face. I mean, they can't possibly be using them the right. way they, um, the way the, the, you know, the best possible kind of protection would be um, available. 
And now this idea that we use them in society, and I think Austria, was Austria one, one of the European countries mandated N95s? Well, it didn't stop them having a big, a big epidemic. Uh, and then for children, I mean, of course, it just makes no sense. And I see my, I see my patients um, wearing N95 masks and almost every patient is wearing it kind of half off their face and so on. It's, it's no more beneficial, you know, than a surgical mask in that situation and probably not beneficial at all um, as far as we it. know. In the hallway, they were wheeling a patient who's unfortunately been intubated, I think, for some surgery. And, um, of course, the people all wheeling were wearing masks. But they had placed a mask over the endotracheal tube for the person who, who's intubated. On the way to, they did. I think because you have to be have a mask on when you're in the hallway, and intubation is not an excuse. And I just thought to myself, it's just become a cross. It's like the cross. You got a necklace with the cross on it, and you just put it on the, you put it on the ET tube and say a prayer. And, I mean, what are we doing? It's a closed-loop circuit. What are we doing with the mask on the tube as decoration? Um, but that's where we are. So here's my question to you. Um, are they crazy or are we crazy? How do we know that we're the ones not crazy, Zeb? Because sometimes I ask myself that what you're telling me is really crazy, and I'm sure you're crazy, but how do I know I'm not crazy? That's the question I ask, yeah. Yeah, well, I think um, that can be hard. You know, living, living through these last two years, yeah. watching all these people lose their minds, uh, watching um, kind of people get appointed by the media as experts yeah. who often have no idea what they're talking about. Um, oh, let's talk about yeah. Go and, on. and and um, you know uh, you know sometimes getting into arguments with people or being ostracized uh, for my own views it's been really difficult. Um, but I you know I think you you have to you, for starters you have to fall back on um, what you know well you know <laughs> and uh, you're someone who understands data, trials, regulatory science. I thought, so. I thought so. Yeah. <laughs> I thought so. I thought so. Extremely well. You know, I've, I've been doing infectious disease ethics for years now, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and I've also, you know, studied epidemiology, you know, do evidence-based medicine mm -hmm. and so on. And yeah, I mean, I know what good data look like. Uh, I've been following it very closely. And it doesn't matter how many times someone says to me, I'm so confident this intervention is going to work or uh, I'm so confident that this virus is dangerous to children or whatever, um, you know, I'd say, show me the data and then bring it to me. And I try and take a relatively balanced view, you know, and mm -hmm. if stuff, if things come out uh, that, that say one way or the other, I try and think, well, you know, what could explain that and so on. Um, and I also try and find people who are still capable of reason, you know, to have discussions with. And when I meet someone who's just obviously not capable of reason because they're thinking through fear and um, and so on. Well, then maybe that's not the time to speak to them um, because mm -hmm. and, and and look, yeah, I mean, I'm quite I'm quite confident here that we're not the crazy ones. And you know, I <laughs> me think, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I think a lot of people are gonna are gonna come back mm -hmm. to the kind of reality. Yeah, uh, they're gonna come join us on this island. Um, and I hope we can have a dialogue and a, you know, a productive future for kind of medicine and public health once everyone's on the same page and stops just kind of yelling about things. Um, but I mean, how do we know? Yeah, you can, you can, you can never know for sure, but, but if it's something, you know, you were good at before and you meet reasonable people and you talk through the things and, you know, the, the, the reasons and the data line up, well, then you can be confident. You just have to wait for the other people who appear crazy uh, to kind of settle down. Uh, and, and I can see that now. Some of the zero COVID people, they're yeah. being pushed out of public yeah. debate. Yeah. And so things are shifting towards a kind of more reasonable 
view. One thing I like to do is, if somebody really wants to talk about COVID, I like to pick like three or five figures from yesteryear, from 2010, from 2005, from peaceful times, but figures where I think there's something clever about it, like what explains this data, or how would you interpret this? And, um, and I like to show it to them and ask them, and, uh, and, then, and then tell them the right answer. And so suddenly they, you can see what, watch their mind get that light where they're like, oh, oh, that's why it did this. And then I show them the COVID data because then they see that they don't know how to read that figure. <laughs> and so they might not know, they might be bringing their emotion, not their analytical thinking to this. And then I have one thought about the TV personalities and I, I'm fleshing this idea out, so I'll bounce it off you. You know, I was thinking about like which, like, of course, the media has anointed experts, and, you know, I don't think they're experts. You don't think they're experts. Uh, and and John Yonides has a, <laughs> and I think he was just doing is to just get him, but he has, like, a nice little paper. You saw this in BMJ Open where he looked at all the people on CNN, and then he looked at their citation trajectory and their publication record, and it's, like, abysmal. <laughs> and I, think, I know he was just goading them because, I mean, I feel it because they're obviously unhappy about it on Twitter, you know, since he is Satan and all. Um, so they, are, they were complaining about it that but okay so i think there are but i was thinking about the people who i respect the least among the cohorts of pundits and it you know it wasn't zeb it wasn't the zero covid zealots it wasn't the masking kids zealots because as much as i disagree with them i feel like they are being true to their selves i mean they may be analyzing the data incorrectly but they know who they are they know what they stand for they're consistent often recalcitrant and now with more data and their unwillingness to budge they're revealing their true selves and i'm enjoying every minute of it you know i think i, I and actually they don't bother me because i'd love to have a spirited debate on tv um and, and the people of course who i agree with they don't bother me it's the weather veins i think there's a class of pundit and i think they are not that good at reading papers. They don't read papers. They never made a career on reading papers. They're not good at it. They're not poised to do it. They're not good at thinking about issues. They're not good at bringing frameworks to think about topics. And I call them a weather vane because they go whichever way the wind's blowing. But they're worse than that. They're a lagging weather vane. They go which way the wind was blowing three days ago because what they're doing is they're on Twitter, they're, on the, they're reading the newspapers, and they're just aggregating, trying to find the midline sentiment. And the reason I don't like them so much, and I think they are truly poison, is because one, they develop huge followings. Because of course, a lot of people see truth to what they're saying, because they're the weather vane. They're the midpoint. Two, they have no principles. They're they, like they're pro-mandate. They don't understand what are the ethical prerequisites for mandate. So when the efficacy goes in the toilet, they don't see that they, that no longer exists, right? Because they're not principled. They're weather vanes. They also severely stifle the ability for people to talk on both sides of the issue and have a dialogue, a debate. They set the the, the, the fence posts for what's acceptable conversation. And um, and you can get far in this career as a weather vane. Like, you can be the dean of a university as a weather vane. You never had an original idea in your whole life. Never did anything, but you just weather veined everything. You kissed up and you weather veined and you're the top. And, 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 and then you get the title, you get the boost of the authority. And so, I don't know, I'm working on, I mean, I'm, this is my idea, but I want to write something and say it's the weather veins that really get me. Okay, thoughts? Well, yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right that there are, um, there's a group of people, there's, you know, there's some people who, ha who, have, who have the data and uh, are misrepresenting it. You know, they're, they're kind of lying. Um, <laughs> yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Then, then, there's a whole nother, then there's a whole group of people who are confused often very neurotic or anxious people yeah. like the zero COVID, COVID crowd and so right. on. They genuinely believe they're doing the right thing. 
Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, they've caused a lot of harm, but uh, sure. but at least at least they're kind of you know speaking what they believe. Um, but uh, yeah, what I think has been worrying is when I look at, among my colleagues, among people in epidemiology and and um, uh, the academy and and in hospitals, is how many people have been getting their information from the media. You know, people mm. who have degrees in kind of medicine and epidemiology. They're just like, yeah, they're like you say, they're on Twitter or, you know, right. the media yes. g- getting what the weather vanes are saying. Yes. That's one of the reasons why I know I'm not crazy because yes. I don't listen to any of that. I just go to the Lancet right. or, you know, the yeah. BMJ and I right. look at the study and I read the data and I check. Um, so that, that's that's one problem. And that those people can be very um, influenced by the weather vanes, right? <laughs> the, yeah. the people yeah. in the center. Yeah. Um, but that's a huge it, phenomenon, I think, because we don't teach people to read the paper and and then they they weather vane like I think the average doctor's understanding of mask is not from it's from the New York Times it's from the Washington Post they've never read a single mask study I know they haven't I know they've not read it because in my field of oncology they don't even read the trials they they, they don't even read and people say oh they read abstracts they don't read abstracts they hear at the coffee machine what somebody heard about the abstract from the drug rep that's where we're practicing and this is the yeah. group of people yeah and then they're saying doctors for masking kids petition. What are we doing? Yeah, yeah. that's okay. right. And drug companies know that, which is why they have the drug reps telling people so they can tell people the water cooler, what the abstract said. And they don't want you yeah. to read the paper because if you read yeah, the paper, course. often it's like it's run by the company. It's kind of the, doesn't all <laughs> add up and so on. Um, uh, and yeah, I, I think it's a problem that, that, that people are getting their information. And I agree. It's an opportunity for reform in kind of education in yeah. in science, medicine and epidemiology, public health education. We need to be teaching people how to appraise evidence properly, you know, and that needs to be one of the core competencies that we require in this kind of world of kind of too much, too much data. Yeah. Um, But on the thing you raised about, I mean, yeah, I can understand that you resent someone who's kind of mediocre rising to be the dean of the university and so on, because they just, (laughs) they they just like say what pleases people. But, you know, that just reveals that originality is often dangerous, you know, in Mm -hmm. society. In science, scientists like to claim they're original, but if you actually look at how science is done, there's very little original science. And most people are just like, they're they're pushing the envelope a tiny, tiny bit. And anyone who pushes it too far in philosophy of science, it's been a long-term observation that, you know, they don't often get accepted straight away. In fact, they often get pushed out. They don't Mm -hmm. get funding and so on. Mm -hmm. So there's always kinds of feedback loops that prevent innovation and originality and that can kind of stifle uh, voices. Um, And yeah. I, but I agree that um, the people who, who who can just change their minds on a topic because public sentiment changes, um, well, you know, well, yeah. what can you what can you say about that? But it's not doing anyone any good apart from them, maybe. Yeah, that's that's what I wonder. It's doing them good, and it's good TV, and it keeps you in the set point, so you get like a lot of balance. But it is really caustic. It's caustic because, you know. I don't know. People say like you know. I, I don't know. I, I hear some people call people call people like mainstream on COVID or non-mainstream. I was like, you know, when you do things, a society has never done in human history. What does it even mean to be non-mainstream about? Like somebody opposes doing something that's never been done in human history. That should be natural and inevitable. That smart people would feel that way if we were reacting in ways we've never done. And I think most of what we did is absolutely unprecedented in all the great plagues. Um, throughout all time, it's facilitated by technology in a way that would have, impo- would have made it impossible even a decade ago, um, done tremendous damage um, to all the people who we're supposed to and we claim to defend. Um, 
And it's done damage to intellectual rigor. It's done damage to dialogue and discourse and poor people and minority people and children. And uh, I don't know. I mean, the virus, the virus did, I don't know. We will have to parse. How much did the virus do and how much did we do to ourselves? And I think, I don't know who's going to be the bigger villain when all is said and written. Um, anything we didn't talk about that you want to hit on? Um, uh, I mean, I think if we're wrapping up, uh, I think for me, what, what I'm really looking for now um, from kind of public officials is someone who can just look at what, look at the information we have now. And as I've said before, start speaking the language of hope. I mean, mm -hmm. you could, the, the fact that the virus is becoming <clears throat> endemic is good news. You know, we should, we should be saying, look, <laughs> severity is down. Yeah. We can reduce restrictions without yeah. there being a public health catastrophe. Yeah. Um, if you're vaccinated or you're young and healthy, you have no need to worry. Yeah. You know, uh, if you have children, your children are going to be fine, healthy yeah. children, either way. If you have, if you have sick children, we're going to help you get them protected by getting vaccinated. Uh, and if you're unvaccinated, uh, you know, as health professionals, we should be saying, we will care for you. You know, we can care for you and we will. And imagine if, imagine if public officials came out and said that now that you don't need to worry. <laughs> Risks are going down. Young, healthy people are fine. And if you're unvaccinated, you know, we'll care for you and welcome back to society. We're, yeah. we're now we're now one big society again. And based on based on the based on the epidemiology now, it would be fine to do that. Um, yeah. But we're not quite there yet. I feel like no, we're heading in that direction. That's really well put. And it's and I agree with you. That's the right answer. I guess the only things I want to add are um, sometimes I see people ask like, well, what about that person who just had a bone marrow transplant, severely immunocompromised? And I would say, um, my honest advice is even with the booster, that is not safe enough. And sending that kid to school with other kids masks, that is not safe enough. If you have somebody with a transient period of deep immunosuppression, you cloister that person right now, you lock down your house, you don't go out, you do the things that the New York Times reporters do, even though they're healthy, you do all those things, that you do the draconian stuff. Like if you have a child who's getting bone marrow transplant, if you are getting a bone marrow transplant, you have to be hard line. I wouldn't want to get Omicron right now because I know six months from now when you immune reconstitute, you'll be in a better position. Um, that's one bucket. The other bucket is if you are forever in some state of immunocompromised, then I think it's a tougher dilemma. It's not transient. It's forever. You're going to have to find the balance between precaution, vaccine, risk reduction, and living, which is what we're all in this business for. And I think, and uh, so that's the immunocompromised part. And then your part about the, what they, public health leaders can do, there, you know, in the U.S. at least, they have like, I don't know if there's too many cooks in the kitchen. There's some schizophrenia. The president says, we're going to mail you four N95s. Well, what the hell am I supposed to do with four N95s? I mean, that creates so much fear. We're going to mail you four N95s, but not five. Also, it's an endemic virus, and Fauci says you're all going to get sick eventually. Which is it? Are you going to mail me an N95, or am I going to get it eventually? Is it both? And then I think, I don't know, the people who are already in power have already... I don't know. Sometimes you have to fire some people and not because they're bad people, but because public only gives you so much rope. And the moment you tie it around your neck and jump off a tree, you're out of rope. And they've done that so many. They've lied. They're putting out bad data. You can see in their face. They don't even know what they're saying. And they're playing games where they treat the public like, um, you know, the recipient of propaganda rather than an equal partner, um, you know. I mean, I think the right answer would have always been to like be 100% 
just totally honest about where you were and your thinking and what you don't know and don't you know um so i don't know if they can walk it back i think they're like in the u.s at least i think we're we're in for you know there will be another pandemic wave which will make everyone's head explode particularly the people who are anxious um and and the the political people running it are now they're thinking about the election which is coming up uh, this year and they're going to be strategizing as to not what's best for public health, but what's best for their prospects. And that's very, you know, we already lived through that once. That's not a good place to be. So what are your thoughts? Are you, are you optimistic? I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel more optimistic. I mean, <laughs> okay, I'm, I, I'm, <laughs> but, but, but I'm also, you know, I, I'm not, I don't I wouldn't say I'm confident about the way things are going to go. You know, um, we're in a we're in a we're in a bigger moment of social crisis even than this pandemic just in the kind of you know early 21st century and we've got a lot of things to sort out as a society um and i don't know if we're gonna how well we're gonna sort all those things out um things about information things about your living together um and so on uh but i agree like uh, even before the election was looming a lot of the things that have been done in this pandemic in the name of public health have actually been for political reasons. You know, uh, a lot of these school interventions, I think, you know, they're probably partly driven by, you know, teachers unions and by the fact that teachers probably felt like they weren't being, you know, supported enough, paid enough, didn't have enough flexibility in their work and so on, all of which I'm totally sympathetic to. Mm-hmm. Um, but the answer wasn't kind of closing schools, masking children and so on. The answer was kind of supporting educators who are doing really valuable work better um but things were things where people say this is for public health reasons often it hasn't been for public health reasons obviously um and then uh yeah i'm starting to feel more optimistic uh, about how things could go but but we need to we need to get out of this kind of state of emergency um and like you say i am of course worried about immunosuppressed people immunocompromised people i've written about this before that we Mm -hmm. do have obligations as a society Mm -hmm. to protect Mm -hmm. those people from being infected yeah the ones who are um immuno immunocompromised immunosuppressed for long periods of time yeah they need to uh they need need a long-term strategy for living and we need a long-term strategy in society but what can't possibly be justified is shutting down all of society um to 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 reduce any risk um and and what's important there or one thing that's important is that uh you know it's a huge burden for uh say asymptomatic healthy people out there in the community to have all their freedoms restricted for a long period of time and there are trade-offs there are trade-offs to be to be made here and they're very real for immunocompromised people um but we but we can find another way to support them that doesn't require uh, such heavy-handed public health interventions. You know, that's really well put. And I guess the only last thought I had is that, like, I mean, you know, I think, I mean, America had so many things that were happening, all parallel traits that kind of led to the fact that our response was going to be so bad. Obviously, there was income inequality, wealth inequality, the powerful people are going to protect themselves. There was also the the sort of the rise of safetyism, safety above all else, and that virtue. There's also the, the movement of um, uh, demonizing your opponents and lack of middle ground and sort of more polarity and polarization and social media didn't help. And then the technology a- enabling this particular response didn't help. Um, and... Um, you know, so I, I feel like those are what happened that was bad. But what's going to come on the back end is just a recognition that, you know, there are some eternal truths about human beings. 
uh, you know, what you're talking about, which is like, we like to get together. We like to laugh. We like to have dinners. Um, we like to meet. We like to have gatherings. We like to go in parks. We like to have nature, uh, you know, and we like to have freedom, what freedom really means, which is the ability to, you know, uh, I saw somebody saying that you're not facing any restrictions now. I was like, every office building is empty. You know, kids are all at home on these staggered schedules. Everyone's living on this. This is not true freedom. Freedom is what it was before. And I think, you know, the new normal, maybe that's the last thing to comment on. I, you know, there is no new normal. It will go back to the way it was before uh, at some point, hopefully in the next year. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just to, just to riff on what you were saying, you know, some of the kind of um, people who wanted us to be, be a bit more fatalistic about um, COVID becoming endemic, you know, used to use this kind of one-liner, virus going to virus, you know, it doesn't matter what virus we do, virus is get the virus uh, yeah. is going yeah. to spread, uh, everyone's going to get infected and so on. Um, you know, I don't think it doesn't matter what we do, but it's true that virus going to virus, especially for something like this, once it's out of control. But the flip side of that is humans going to human, you know, and I think we just have to accept that, uh, you know, if we want to have a society, we can't have zero infectious disease risk. Uh, most people want to go back to, you know, a, a very large fraction of the kind of human interaction they were doing before. Uh, a lot of young people, they, they want to catch up on the last kind of two years that they lost. Uh, yeah. And uh, we, we need to let humans, humans be humans again and not just be vectors for infectious diseases. They're going to definitely need some vaccines. We just don't know which ones and how many. But okay, Zev, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it's always uh, a reminder of my own sanity, uh, <laughs> which is uh, greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great. And hey, likewise.